when anyone is uh, ready, we'll look into um, any questions, see what comes up. I enjoyed your talk about putting aside what's not necessary and sweeping things away. Can you say more about how to use this kind of practice to deal with past trauma, please? Well, sweeping is a is a good gesture, but away maybe a little bit. <laughs> it may not exactly go away <laughs> on first shot, because we don't want to dismiss things. We're just kind of first of all, you know, putting aside what can be put aside, or what easily that's enough of that. And clearly, some some tendencies and some experiences are more uh, embedded, more rooted than that. And those one has to make a focus of your practice. So there's putting aside what's irrelevant, yeah, which should be just a gentle, repetitive sweeping. And some of those topics seem to have fairly nothing special tops to them. But as you sweep away, you realize, oh, there's something underneath this about feeling like a failure or... Um, fundamental threat experience don't feel safe here and this i this string of thoughts is just a superficial ripple on the surface of that so yeah so we sweep away but then clearly we're also coming into the roots of these behaviors mental actions many of them which are not chosen um, and they're not something you just say oh you know forget it um, they require some full attention, uh, an attention that that uh, brings the resources of the body or the embodied state and mental skill or aware skill of awareness to bear upon these areas. And if it's problematic area, it will generally have a problematic somatic quality to it. We feel space around us is no longer comfortable it's disappeared we feel compressed no space around me uh, or i feel completely estranged there's too much space around me there's no ground beneath me uh, you know it could be something like that it could be a fellow kind of blocked up in my throat or my shoulders are hunching over they feel like they're hunching over if they look don't look like it they feel like it as a kind of defense reflex comes in you know, the very simple, um, perhaps simplistic um, sense is to find out where you are comfortable, which could be in the space around you. It could be standing in the soles of your feet. That's generally pretty much okay. Soles of the feet, they, they, you don't get a lot of trauma in your feet. So that's a good one. Or it could be in your somewhere in your lower back, for example, or anywhere in your body you feel something that you know this is okay bring your awareness there and then you gradually open the loop around awareness to nudge into areas which are not so comfortable and it's almost like you're getting the two to shake hands you know this is the un this is the uncomfortable you know dis disconnected place and this is the comfortable place and they're just hello shaking hands and we're not trying to push anything away we're just um by that contact, by meeting with no 
agenda other than to meet, yeah, and maintaining, if you like, the leader of that being the more comfortable or more positive or more sane or more balanced area of your embodiment or your mind or both ideally. So you're approaching with a mind that's balanced, not frantic, not judgmental, not fearful, compassionate, grounded and feeling in your body and then just expanding your awareness over areas that are less comfortable. And you should always proceed in line with the ability to feel comfortable. So if you, because certainly afflictive areas got their own energy. If you just push in there, they're liable to just get contracted, like meeting a wild animal. You know, you don't go in with a, start poking around with a stick and telling it to behave. You first of all look at it and croon at it and then you maybe touch it lightly and you feed it and then it gradually calms down and then you know that's the way you work and you work always in line with your health and your balance and try to extend that in accordance with how far that could be extended into your areas that are less comfortable and clear and that's the fundamental piece um, if you can't, if that's very difficult, then you try to get someone else to help you do it. So in other words, they become the voice or the sound or the tone keeper who's encouraging to stay with that, uh, you know, so you don't get confused and, and lost. So that's what I'd say about that. Um, and it's, it's the case that, um, you know, the word trauma, um, yeah, I think there's, Severe trauma and mild trauma. I think being born is pretty traumatic. For a start, you're suddenly thrown out into uh, this lot. <laughs> That's quite quite amazing, I think. Uh, so, yeah, you know, it, it's liable to arise once you, because much of the conditioning of our lives is to avoid these areas where we're not so comfortable and steady and, and at ease. So we do distraction um, almost as a reflex. Your mind just nudges away from something, gets busy doing something, or it falls asleep when you're trying to be awake. Why did it do that? It just doesn't, yeah. Or it jitters and flutters away. Uh, a lot of compulsive habits are reflexes that move us away from the areas where we're not grounded and whole uncomfortable so we may not even really notice it but when you meditate these areas are much more liable to speak and what they say not necessarily verbally but emotionally and tonally can be very challenging you know sort of tangled congested or you know something of this nature oh yeah so let's what does this one need and we What's the tone of this quality? What's the tonality of it? It feels very intense or very uh, nervy or something. You don't want to get intense about it. You should be very open and, and non-threatening and non-judicating over that. But just the open presence that listens. It's a way, you know, a lot of meditation can be about dealing with all this chatter in your head chattering your mind but the deep stuff often doesn't have a voice 
Uh, it doesn't have a voice. Uh, it's just the kind of uh, state. And the process of it uh, uh, unraveling, it, as you experience it, it begins to speak. Not necessarily verbally, but emotionally. Uh, and that can be fairly um, uh, challenging. Uh, so you, you're in difficult emotional state arising out of chance perception or something. So it's really important to get that, that steady. So the comfort is actually quite strong. It's a re resilient. It doesn't collapse. Yeah. Yeah. So we first of all get the place we feel comfortable linger it till it builds up a certain the mind really knows that and gets is fed with that it's no longer depleted then it can have the strength to, to meet difficult experiences strength compassion and clarity Moses' experiences will seem to be myself and have personal stories about what I am and what I'm not or what people say and think and so forth. And these are always, there's a truth to it, but it's not a truth that leads to liberation. For liberation, you've got to sort of come out of the person. This is just, this is the fear quality. This is the anger quality. This is the violence. This is the, you know, unloved quality. It's not personal. It's not actually me. It's happening to this being. Can I, is it possible there's a place where I can stand or sit in the presence of that without proliferating and identifying and reacting to it? Yeah. So that's, that's practice. Question number two. Could you say more about the relationship between meditation and right livelihood, please? What is the origin of right livelihood in Buddhism? Well, it's about living in harmony with one's uh, circumstances. And, uh, well, with, well, actually, not necessarily with one's circumstances, exactly, but with uh, um, the circumstances that we perceive when we have right view and right intention okay so when I say circumstances we might say well you know there's the football and there's the politics and there's, how do I live with that but when we have the mind is looking for point of morality and, and right view we look at where you know is the circumstances am I in harmony with a, with an intention and with qualities that are sustaining for people sustaining for human beings sustaining for the planet so we're trying to believe in harmony with the true law of the cosmos. Now this may be a strange phrase for us in this day and age, but this is absolutely prevalent in the Buddhist worldview. The Buddha came from Indian culture. And Indian culture, and not just Indian culture, but um, Chinese also, so these great cultures, had a sense of the cosmos essentially being an or as an order to it in which both physical material and uh, immaterial spirits gods deities energies forces 
human beings uh, with their relationships and of course the, the human mind they all fit together so where these fit together that's the cosmos and the cosmos is in harmony and the human duty which is dharma is your duty is your dharma is to live in line with that and your first base for that am i living with a sense of respect for the cosmos then am i living how does that respect manifest in terms of my actions i act morally you know? and the buddha says you know when people don't act morally the cosmos goes out of whack the winds don't blow the rain doesn't fall crops don't grow people starve when there are evil ministers and kings and they set bad examples the cosmos goes out of joint the gods are not happy everything goes wacky and you're looking well that's that's what's happened that's what's happening right now as we can see climate change and all that sort of stuff now from the vedic point of view that means the cosmos which is you know the human mind the you know, human spirit human activities the natural world and the supernatural now supernatural in in that time is expressed in terms of gods spirits you can do what you like with that uh, but i think they were onto something because <laughs> all, all societies held that so that understanding of there being something beyond the purely material we can call it the, the biosphere the bioenergies whatever you know um or gaia now of course you've got gaia as a, a sort of thing um, so some sort of immaterial force or energies god whatever so right livelihood is how do i sustain this body by drawing resources from that cosmos how do i distribute back yeah without polluting and poisoning how do i take without ravaging and destroying myself other people the planet and how do i give back without dumping and polluting and make sure i do give back you know i'm not just a suction pump sucking everything out but there's a sense of this is right livelihood i take in and i share and i do with a mind of impartiality now how that breaks down in terms of your average human being nowadays it's up for personal recollection but i mean you know <laughs> you kind of miss the fact that we are uh in an extremely critical um, stage you know in the human time scale in having consumed much too much of planetary resources and having polluted uh, so we've taken in more and we've dumped out trash uh and it's not just physical it's also um mental attitudes greed uh competitive hatred uh, and not distributing our knowledge evenly not distributing our generosity evenly not distributing our loving kindness evenly to all creatures so whatever we do in terms it's not just making a living it's making yourself alive properly alive in the cosmos um so this our duty really or our dharma our service is how can i impart welfare to anything you know and not take more than i need from anything and sh share with everything as much as i can that's that's right livelihood
So, you know, meditation, you're beginning to hope, get a sense of, you know, because wrong livelihood messes you up. Uh, you've got the wrong energies, you've got the wrong attitudes, you've got the business model, you've got the consumer model, you've got that model. On right livelihood, you've got the sharing model. So, naturally, your mind's going to feel a lot sweeter and more easy and more open from that. So, meditation is a result of right livelihood and a, and a, a reference to right livelihood. If, you don't, if your livelihood's wrong, your meditation's not going to be um, easy and comfortable. Question number three. You mentioned embodied presence as the starting point for meditation. Does Goenka's body scanning method relate to that satisfactorily? I haven't really done that, so I can't comment too much. I think the only, uh, from what I've heard, it can sound a little bit mechanical, like you, you know, whereas I would suggest something that's a little more organic. In other words, you're feeling, this not just some microcosmic scientific sweeping through every detail, but just feeling the sense of the body and the body as a whole, and being able to span and encompass the whole body, so I don't I don't really go with microscopes very well. Some things are seen better with microscopes. Some things are felt better through the uh, through the energetic sense. And quite a lot of, in my opinion, a lot of meditation has gone very much to the visual metaphor, in which you scan everything, and the idea is to go finer and finer and finer. That has benefits for clarity it's not great on compassion it's not great on receptivity it's not great on feeling and uh, uh, um, feeling not just a sensation but feeling as a heart quality so if your meditation becomes too mechanical uh, sometimes you lose the wisdom of the heart which is much more Maybe this needs a little more lingering in. Maybe I should stay long with that and something in this. You know, it's a little more receptive than sort of microscopic, systematic focusing. Question number four. Do the contracted and anxious modes that you talked about correspond to any traditional Buddhist terminologies, like the hindrances, for example, or similar things? Or are they more from your own experience? More the latter, more from my own experience. Um, you know, they're just things I note, and I notice them because, although they don't come under the classic lists of the five hindrances or the asava, uh, when you begin to experience yourself the in somatic sense, these become fairly good references, simple references to where hindrances are bunching up. Um, as you probably recognise, hindrances don't just come one at a time. <laughs> you know, they sometimes three or four of them gang up together and get into get hindrance cocktails, <laughs> and the net result is you're sort of tangled up. So the tangling may be because of fear and aversion and greed and da 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 da, da. but the net result is there's a tangle. So can we just get to tangled? And what does tangle need? And then maybe as the body domain opens, then you can begin perhaps to discern the hindrances or some of them just seem to fall out because they don't have a bodily base. You could, you could maybe look at them as negative 
for elements such as the earth element too rigid uh, the fire element just too heated up you know the air element too restless and the water element which is in your kind of um, uh, sunken states so they're just just pragmatic notes field notes on experience question number five regarding the four elements they're normally presented as a sequence of earth air fire and water is there something about using the sequence that is important or can i play around with the order I think I went from earth, fire, air, water. Water is the most difficult, uh, or, or the, in some ways. Uh, earth is probably the fir first one to get, because it really gets you, should get you in yourself grounded, grounded earth, stable. Um, and then you see what seems to be, you probably could go from there to breathing, which would be the air element. Uh, so I, I'm not fixed on a particular sequence. I tend to go to the fire element because the sense of warmth or lack of it is both um, to do with um, body vitality, also mental vitality. So if we're all fired up, these elements tend to cross over into the mental domain. So if we feel really grounded, there's a mental tone. If our energy, our heart energy is nice and warm, we're comfortable, we're happy, rather than heated up and passionate or cold and reluctant that seems to be important to know before you get anything more refined more 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 one-pointed but you play around with them yeah question six regarding connecting with the forest tradition lineage i often have the feeling of connection to the teachers like Achan Sumedho and yourself when i meditate and i feel a lot of gratitude as a result is this something that I can use? Thank you. Yeah, I take it for granted because, you know, they're my brothers and sisters out there. And so you just, you know. <laughs> uh, well, if it, if it touches you, that's, that's excellent because it's so, you know, important to have a feeling of Kalyanamita. And in lay life, that can be pretty sporadic, you know, in that you maybe know somebody in the next town, but the people next door not Kalyanamita, you know, it can be pretty broken up, yeah. So the sense of community is, is considered a considerable asset. That's why the Buddha developed Sangha and talked about the fourfold assembly, you know, of monks and nuns and laymen and laywomen as being, this is this is the model. We're trying to get this sense of, you know, then we belong to something and there's something that the mind, heart does, feels more confident, when you feel you, you you belong, you know, it's it's a kind of nebulous term, really. How do you belong? You belong because you feel you belong. <laughs> you don't have to, you know, join something or get a ticket or pay anything. You just harp connection. And that's helpful because, uh, um, you know, what else goes into your mind and heart? You look around the political world, it's hardly something you really want to take, expect much uplifting news from. <laughs> she belonged to that. <laughs> it's, it's hardly inspiring. And so, you know, you look for anything that you can turn to that gives you a sense of, I'm in a, some kind of micro world 
that supports faith and integrity and compassion and peace. And, you know, and these aren't just ideas, they're people living it out, you know, or reasonably, recognisably human beings, they're not disembodied angels, they're recognisable human beings. So that means part of you then belongs, because you're a recognisable human being too. So it's helpful. Um, yeah, you go like you go to Tibetan monasteries, particularly like a big thing out of that. You go to a Tibetan monastery, you see on the wall, they've got the lineage going back to the time of fifth century BC. You know, <laughs> so and so and so and so, forty people in a line, all lined up on the wall, going way back. You know, and that's that's our that's our mob. That's my great 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 granddad. You know, way back there. So this is who we are. This particular entity is just one little wave in a in a in an ocean of, of sweeps on. It helps get yourself less less of an individual, less of a um, isolated fragment. Kalyanamita, it's the whole of the holy life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and generally just the sense of being connected is already a teaching in itself. Yeah. Uh, and then maybe you see qualities you can emulate, things they don't do, things they do do, gestures and attitudes that strike you, you're listening into the right radio channel, the right people as it were, picking up your signals from that. All helps, all definitely helps. Mm. Question number seven. You mentioned the purification or cleaning of the chitta. Did I get that right? Can you explain that a bit, please? Um, it's cleaning, you know. It's uh, taking out the crumples and the dents and the stains, <laughs> just making it feel good. And that's uh, not to be overlooked. I mean, sometimes it can seem we just witness what's going on, but the Buddha didn't teach that or that alone. Certainly, we do witness, but also we do, you know, therapeutic handling. <laughs> Of our of our heart mind, and you know, otherwise it's it's uh, so it's encouraging, and you get some resources from it. Pure mind also gets strong, you know, it strengthens. Mm. 